Amela Ana Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Artificial intelligence can be used to make music. From coming up with a beat to creating a melody, artists are beginning to use it. Taryn Southern, a musician, talked about the user experience for creating music with and without artificial intelligence. We talked about existing tools as well as the APIs that are available to create music with AI. Taryn Southern, musician, producer, artist, and writer, is joining us today. Taryn, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you. We're going to be talking about using AI for making music and also the user experience for this. But first, I want to understand what the process is for making music before using AI. And I'm curious, when did you first start to make music? Well, I started writing music when I was in high school. I was really excited about theater and drama, and I started writing musicals. But the problem was I didn't have I didn't have a formal music education, so my many songs were left to sit on notebook paper rather than actually be recorded because I didn't have the skills to actually produce the music. So it wasn't until later on that I actually started producing my music with the help of others who were more skilled in music production. And for this time, what kind of tools were available for you? My goodness. Well, I remember actually in high school downloading some knockoff version of Pro Tools, which is basically an audio workstation that allows you to make music from scratch using either a keyboard or instrument that you can plug into your computer and convert um, using digital technology to a MIDI format, or allows you to just use your computer solely for creating music. So I downloaded one of those early versions back in high school and was playing around with it. And I, I actually did manage to put together a very rough orchestral type uh, type song. But it wasn't until, like I said, in my 20s that I actually started, early 20s, started heavily recording music. And that was usually with the help of Pro Tools or Reaper or another one of those more advanced music production workstations. Can you talk a little bit about the workflow of this other tools like Pro Tools? So you open this tool and what? how do you get started? So Pro Tools and Reaper and some of these more advanced music workstations, I'm actually not super proficient with. So, yeah. so every time I wanted to record a song using one of those tools, I had to work with another music producer who was more skilled than I was. Yeah. But if you've ever been familiar with a garage band or one of the more basic tools that offer some of the finite capabilities that the larger workstations do, they can be pretty simple. I mean, garage band depending on how you decide to go about writing a song, you can go in there, you choose the instruments that you would like to create with, and you can pull up a keyboard or a guitar fret or whatever instrument that you have some experience or knowledge with to play chords off of using your keys. Mm -hmm. And then from there, you can transpose those notes into different chord structures just by using drag and drop technology mm -hmm. to find the chords and the notes that you want to place on the screen. So there are a lot of easier 
visual drag and drop programs for this, but for the experienced musician, you know, you want to use something like a Pro Tools to give you more capabilities or Logic. Okay. I've used GarageBand, but just to edit this show for some time. <laughs> okay. How is that experience for you? Yeah, pretty good. I mean, it does the job. I'm just cutting parts and raising volumes. Exactly. Yes. And I totally understand where you're coming from. A lot of these tools, they have so many options. And then, I mean, I've had some exposure to them and it's just overwhelming sometimes at first when you get started. It can be. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. And based on the exposure you had to these tools and working with another person in them, is there a lot of repetitive things in the music making process? Definitely. (laughs) Now, because I'm not a producer, you know, it's taken me a lot longer to probably pick up on the quote unquote process of making music than it would someone who's been taught in that field or with those tools. Mm -hmm. But and not everyone has the same process. But for the most part, a lot of the pop producers I work with lay down a beat Mm -hmm. or they find a loop or a sample that they really like from the sample store import it into a Pro Tools or a Logic, and then from there build melodies off of that beat. And then the process is usually some level of back and forth collaboration between the songwriter, myself, and that producer to lay down the right musical sounds and textures and rhythms to match the lyrics and the vocal melodies of which I've usually already put together for the song. Mm -hmm. And that's an iterative back and forth process that's sort of like this binary try one thing, yes, that works, no, that doesn't work, or some variation of that. Yeah, it's a lot like programming, I think, also because, like you said, you start off with this beat and melodies, and then at some point you start repeating them throughout the song and you go back and forth, right? Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah, so it's like a lot like programming. Exactly. Let's move on now just to get an idea of using artificial intelligence for making music, which you've done. Actually, you're making a whole record, right, with artificial intelligence. Yes, that's correct. How do you define artificial intelligence? What does it mean to you? Well, okay. (laughs) Here I'm just looking, you know, everybody defines it in different words. Just I was just curious what your definition of artificial intelligence is. Well, okay. I suppose how I would define AI for music might be different than how I would define general AI, but it also just depends on the the context of the conversation I'm, happening, I'm having. So usually I think that one of the simplest definitions of AI is just that it's an umbrella term that describes a set of instructions that you can tell a computer to do. And what hopefully makes these instructions unique is that they mimic the structure, natural structure of human thought. Mm-hmm. When I'm thinking about it in terms of creating music, I usually think of subsets of artificial intelligence like natural language generation or machine learning. And hopefully the AI has some sort of component to it that allows it to essentially, quote unquote, get better and learn from itself, learn from a set of ongoing parameters that are given. But of course, like depending on the software that I'm using, the definition of AI might change given the complexity or the capability set of that of that platform. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. And in your experience for making music, in what aspects of this process can artificial intelligence be used? I think AI can be used to to generate music in a myriad of ways. And there are a number of platforms that take care of different areas of the music creation pipeline process. I have yet to see any AI that can actually make music from start to finish without any human help that is good music. 
or even like remotely good music. It usually most of the platforms or algorithms that I've worked with, they're very good at one thing and they do that one thing well, but they're not so great at synthesizing. So for instance, I have yet to see an AI algorithm that can successfully complete a song with really great song structure intact mm-hmm. with a sense of, of build and a sense of build and a sense of like the, the journey that a song takes you on from verse to chorus back to you know verse and then another chorus again and like our modern day pop structure that we're very accustomed to hearing and this sort of build of a song that I have yet to hear AI do. Although I think IBM Watson has gotten very, very close. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, definitely. And you are mentioning AI is used in certain parts of the pipeline. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what those parts of the pipeline is? For example, do you divide it by let's get the beat and then let's get a melody? Well, that's one way to divide the pipeline and it depends on the software that I'm using. With Amper AI, for instance, I divide the pipeline like that. I say, first, let me get the beat. I usually want to lay down the underlying rhythm of the song to match whatever it is that I've written. From there, I will usually then, once I'm happy with the beat and I've downloaded those stems, then I go in and create the melody that will live within the beat that I can architect my vocal melody around. Mm -hmm. And from there, I then shift into instrumentation selection. Like, well, what kind of instruments are going to make this sound really interesting? Do I want a cinematic vibe with lots of violins and with cellos? Or do I want to go into a more electronic vibe with synthesizers and kind of fun sound effects? And that's where I get to play around a lot and hear the difference between transposing instrumentation. And then usually at that point, I go back to the drawing board and I take all of these different elements. I've now combined them into a full song and I can hear how they sound together. And that's where I can make overarching song structural changes to the way that the verse or the chorus transition into each other. Or maybe I just flop them all together. Maybe I get rid of a chorus because I just don't think it fits any longer. And I'll go back to the drawing board and recreate a chorus. But that's how I work with Amper. Whereas with software like Watson, for instance, I spend a lot more time focused on instrumentation selection because their natural output is uh, through MIDI. And so there are a lot more choices, I guess you could say, that I need to make as a songwriter in terms of how that instrumentation is laid out, but less choices I have to make in terms of the melodies of the actual song. And like you mentioned earlier, artificial intelligence is this big umbrella term. One of the things that falls in this is machine learning. And for machine learning, we tend to use a lot of data to learn something. So I'm curious, as you're using artificial intelligence to make music, what are some of the things that can be learned from a music data set? Oh man, Um, a lot of things. And so much of it has to do with how the data is tagged on the music. Because music as an experience is so subjective, but we're learning how to, I think through this process, I have a much better understanding of perhaps how the emotional variation as a result of hearing certain pieces of music might be architected from the ground up. So what does it mean to have a song that is a building anthem versus a melancholy love song? Or, you know, what are the various qualities of these songs? Is it the chord structure? Is it the rhythm? Is it the, is it a combination of these things? Mm -hmm. So it's been fun to get into the data, not from, I'm not an engineer, but from a user perspective to see how data is, I suppose, categorized when you're setting these parameters and running the programs. 
So I think one of the things that we're definitely learning is how people's musical preferences develop over time or why you might like a whole genre of music and strongly dislike another genre of music. And some of that is just purely subjective experience and what you're exposed to. And I think some of that is fairly universal. You know, like there are certain chord structures that are very uncomfortable (laughs) for the human ear. And then there are others that are quite popular within pop music. And so when we're running a lot of these algorithms and you start to see some very familiar patterns pop up within certain genres of music, and it makes sense because it's either being trained on a number of songs that are well-liked or popularized amongst, um, you know, amongst a certain group of people, or it's that the engineers have set very specific rules for that AI to learn from given how humans typically respond to certain types of music. And so in many cases, I think the AI is teaching us how to be better composers and learn patterns from the data that perhaps would be harder for us to pick out on our own. And also a lot of the patterns that human composers learn are very much based on the familiar data set that they are exposed to. So if you're taught jazz music, chances are you're going to be If you're exposed to jazz music early on, chances are you'll probably be more adept at composing music that's in the jazz style. And it could be very difficult for you to move over into samba or um, Brazilian music or pop or whatever it might be. And with, I think, some of the new AI technologies, they could encourage people to explore other areas and other genres that they're not so familiar with and give them the data recognition abilities, the the pattern recognition to construct music that is enjoyable and to figure out why that music is enjoyable, why people like listening to it in that genre. That's actually a great point that you brought up. What I'm visualizing is, like you said, if somebody was exposed to jazz from an early age and they are composing something jazz inspired, obviously, then they can have a hybrid approach where there's some AI and the AI can say, you know what, with what you've just written, if you mix this, it can sound good. And then like you said, that's exactly right. It could just give them some very easy tips, tricks, things that, you know, some blind spots that perhaps they weren't even familiar, that they were making them aware of their blind spots, so to speak. And then I think the other exciting opportunity that it affords is saying if the AI can, or let's say the human composer goes to the AI and says, I'm really good at writing jazz music, but I really want to mix it up. I felt a bit creatively stuck the last few years. I kind of want to give orchestral music a try. So how about I collaborate with an AI that's been taught off of Beethoven or off of Hans Zimmer? And let's see what happens when we take my skill set and combine them with a composer that is very different. And that's, I think, where we get some really, really interesting new works that are created as a result of this technology. And I see this part of artificial intelligence and making music as divided into things. We have the algorithms and the training of data, but we also have the user experience, which I think is really important to help us adopt technologies that use AI. So I'm really curious a little bit more on the user experience side. For example, just now you mentioned I can use an AI that was trained in Beethoven. Has that been your experience where you get to choose the AI and you select what to train it on or what it has been trained on? I haven't seen the system, so I don't really know. 
Yeah, you can currently do that. Um, I wish it was as easy as pulling down a drop down menu that said <laughs> Beethoven, Hans Zimmer, etc. And it's unfortunately not at this point. But yes, with a platform like Watson, for instance, or I shouldn't call it really a platform. I mean, it's a neural network or algorithm, but I have to convert if I want it to learn from a set of data, I, it's, I'm responsible for giving Watson the data in a form that it knows. And in this case, it's in the MIDI format. And so like most modern pop songs or well, really any song that you download, it's going to be an MP3 or an M4V or something related to that. And so I've got to figure out how to transpose the music into a MIDI format. And then I can feed it into the algorithm for it to learn from. And same with Google Magenta, it's a very similar process. So in those instances, you do get to exercise a lot of choice around what you want that algorithm to learn. And then from there, what sorts of parameters you want it to apply to your new creation now that it's Mm -hmm. learning from the rules of the song that you fed it. Now with some of the other algorithms, they don't work based on given data sets. They work based on given rules that have been fed based on genre or based on mood or tone. So it just depends on what you're using and what your goals are. Mm -hmm. So the way you're describing it, it sounds like it's very in the early days and it's very open. You can feed it pretty much any data set that you want, right? That's correct. Yeah, correct. Okay. All right. The other part that I want to talk about before we finish that I was really curious on is that you're also, you know, you're a musician and you're bringing technology to the music making process. We've talked about artificial intelligence. The other portion that I saw that you're using, which is fairly new and it's been on the news a lot, is blockchain technology. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, in what ways are you actually, what I want to start first with is just a quick definition of what blockchain means. <laughs> It's like the hardest thing to define, but um, <laughs> oh man, a blockchain, let's see here. It's so funny because I just did a video on on. Bitcoin and crypto and explaining what crypto is, but blockchain is a, is a technology that essentially allows transactions or really any sort of data to be recorded in a public ledger. So actually, I'm going to do a better job than that. By the way, I'm not looking up the definition. I'm not Googling it. I'm doing my best to just give my definition. I, so I would say blockchain is an underlying technology that can be applied to many different technologies as the underlying infrastructure that is an encrypted infrastructure that allows for transactions or data to be recorded on some sort of ledger. Mm -hmm. So when you have this as the underlying technology for things, it allows people to transact with one another. It allows businesses and consumers to interact with one another. And for every activity that is happening in that space to be recorded, with it all happening in a decentralized sort of manner. <laughs> yeah, manner is a good word. Yeah, I forgot the most important aspect of blockchain being decentralized. I don't think I put that in my first part of the definition. But yeah, so it's, it's a decentralized ledger that accumulates information as users interact with it. And there's a record being kept, like historical record, I would say, of each transaction, right, between the parties involved. That's right. And so the very foundation of blockchain technology and what makes it interesting and the reason why it's growing so much in interest and, and also in hype is because it's a pretty immutable trust mechanism. 
because currently most of our businesses, especially under the capitalistic world, are kind of everything happening in business or even in law, politics, et cetera, behind closed doors. And so I think people are really excited about the idea of a technology that can still enable privacy, but also give people the assurances they need that things are being done a certain way, um, that people are trustworthy, that businesses are trustworthy, that countries are trustworthy, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yes. And what I'm curious about is that in my research for this interview, I saw you're creating a tokenized song. Correct. Can you explain what this means, tokenized song? The tokenized song is a project that I started last fall, wherein I gave out free tokens for a yet-to-be-created song to anyone who had a public Ethereum wallet address and wanted to take part. And what this token enables is the ability to collect back-end revenues on this song and to collaborate and participate in the creation of the song. So the experiment was to see what happens when we can incentivize people to come together and collaborate and offer them, as a result of their participation, offer them actual monetary value in the back-end ownership of that asset. And the reality is that music is not the biggest business in the world unless you're Justin Bieber or Selena Gomez. It's really hard to make good money. But what happens when you get people working together and collaborating towards a shared goal, you might see some really interesting things happen. So that is the purpose of that collaboration. It's been a lot of fun. I think over 300 people have the token and we have been collaborating on writing the song over the past several months. And I'm actually recording it next month. So I'm very excited about that. And then once I release the song, I'll be working with the 300 or so collaborators to come up with a fun marketing strategy And then they will all receive micro payments in the form of Ethereum tokens, um, which they can then convert to cash should they choose once the song is released and actually making money on Spotify and iTunes and other places. That's great. And does this approach to making a song by collaborating, leveraging the blockchain technology also simplify things like what you just mentioned about payments to collaborators? Oh, yeah, <laughs> in a huge way. Right now in the music industry, over the past 10 years, it's, well, probably in the life of the music industry, but certainly since I've been active in the industry for 10 years, it's the, the back-end payment process is a mess. It's so hard to ensure that collaborators get paid. There are a number of different royalty payments that exist, and they're all pretty convoluted and confusing. And so most of the time, a lot of artists leave money on the table that they don't even know that they deserve because they haven't registered or filed under the right entity. And so there are companies that are working to address this and have made it much easier to ensure that collaborators get paid. But even then, it's not the simplest process. Micropayments are incredibly hard to track because a lot of these companies are still operating on paper and mail systems. And so they're not going to mail people, uh, you know, a dollar and 29 cent check. But if you could receive micropayments online, these really simple, easy transactions that have very little fees associated with the movement of that money, then that actually becomes really interesting for especially the working musician. Let's talk a little bit about online presence strategies just before we finish. I saw you have a successful YouTube channel and successful personal brand and online presence. So I just want to ask you in your opinion, what makes a successful YouTube channel? Oh, well, I think the definition has changed a lot over time mm -hmm. and it depends on how you define success. But 
you know, it's harder these days than it was five and certainly 10 years ago to build a successful YouTube channel. I, I suppose I would define success as something that you're able to make a living off of so that hopefully you're not having to work five jobs just to be a YouTuber. Yeah. And I was fortunate enough at a certain point in my YouTube career to be able to do that. However, I no longer actively pursue YouTube as a career. I only post maybe one video a month, if that. So I definitely don't make enough to get by. I really don't even make enough to pay for the content itself Mm -hmm. because the content production process is so expensive, but it is possible. And I think when you get really good at sort of playing by the rules and understanding how the algorithms work and optimizing your content for your audience, it's quite possible to to have a successful channel and and do only that one thing. And I have a number of friends who are still doing it after many, many years, and I wish them the best. Mm-hmm. Yes, and also because I guess you decided to focus on other projects like these music creation projects, which I think are really cool. Thank you. Yeah, I did. I realized a few years ago that it was just becoming increasingly difficult to maintain a YouTube channel without massively increasing my output. And part of that is just because so many more people became interested in digital creation, which is awesome. And part of that is just, and as a result of that, also, you know, young millennials and Gen Zers only consuming media on their phones. You just saw a lot of other big brands and businesses getting into the game. So it just became increasingly competitive. And then on YouTube side, they started shifting their algorithm more towards watch time and keeping people on the site, which meant there were some very large changes for certain types of creators. And it just became harder for me to make the content that I really wanted to make. I was starting to make content I wasn't happy with and proud of, and it was the only way to stay in the game. So I eventually decided to move on and pursue other opportunities, which I'm really happy about doing. But of course, I still try to keep up with my YouTube channel every once in a while. Yes. And just to show how much this changed, I was very surprised when I saw some person on Twitter said they went to a school and they asked the kids, you know, to write down what they want to be when they grow up and a bunch of them put YouTuber. So yeah, and a lot of these kids make millions off of YouTube, but that's a different story. Yep. Not surprised. <laughs> well, Karen, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been great talking about your projects in music and blockchain and artificial intelligence. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you.